The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. This is the last episode of the season. We're going to break for the summer and come back for season two in the fall. Uh, it's been really neat, but I've begun the process of picking out guests and topics that I think are relevant and interesting, at least for me, for season two. If there are topics that you're keen to hear explored on Welcome to the Food Court, please reach out through social media, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's hard to choose topics because there are so many different things happening in food at any given moment that frankly receive little attention otherwise, uh, but we would hate to miss out on some good content ideas. So this is episode eight, and it's a recording of me and a lawyer named Dan Kutcher in Halifax last fall. Dan's a food lawyer with Cox and Palmer in Summerside, PEI. We both went to law school together, which kindles fond memories. On the whole, I remember Schulich Law at Dalhousie University as being a, a pretty fun place to receive a formal education. At the school, a student-run group arranges several law hours every academic year, Lawyers come in and speak to students and professors about current events or alternative careers or problems in law over some lunch. And annually, it seems like there is always one Supreme Court justice who attends, and then there is a semi-usual cast of characters, including the Chief Justice of the Nova Scotia Supreme Court, some other heavyweight lawyers in their fields and family and criminal and so on. But they also make space for former grads doing unusual things with their degrees. Dan and I, I guess we fall into that last category, the the wacky category. So we were really keen to visit and speak to the law hour last November. And we were surprised when there was a full classroom of students and professors who were foregoing an hour in the library to listen to us. Our topic was designed to help students explore what practice in this area of law looks like. Every time I come across a lawyer who practices with a focus on food, or beverage issues, they understand food law in a slightly different way. Often it's framed through the lens of a classical practice area. So we wanted to help explain to students what our respective practices look like. We've got some fun news for you here as well. I've been working with Professor Jamie Baxter, who you might remember from episode four, and Food Lawyers of Canada, to put on a conference on food law and policy in Canada. 
the first ever conference of its kind at Dalhousie this November. More exciting, we're going to partner with Devour Food Film Fest in Wolfville to put on partnered content and food-related activities at the Al Whittle Theater and perhaps some field trips to wineries or orchards in the Valley of Nova Scotia. Uh, I went to Devour last year. I had a great time. I listened to Jeremy Charles and Todd Perrin, two chefs from St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, who spoke about regulatory reform relating to fisheries law and local procurement. So we're going to embed part of our conference into an already fantastic event. I think it's going to be equally enjoyable for food lawyers as it will be for foodies. But more on that to come soon. Now, lastly, I've been urged by a couple very wise media-type friends uh, to ask something of you. Please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. This has been a great experience this last season. It stimulated some fantastic discussion. We've had wonderful coverage in the Globe and Mail and uh, on a few other online sources. Uh, I'm grateful for anyone who gives us a listen. I'm even more grateful when we receive feedback. Rating us helps people find this podcast, which helps both lawyers and the public learn about this practice area and the simple fact that there are lawyers who spend their free time thinking about issues like seed systems and tipping and health and safety on the family farm, which I think is on the whole a very positive development. But we'd really appreciate the help and welcome to the food court. Thanks to you in advance. Okay, here we go. Me and Dan Kutcher at Law Hour at Chuluk School of Law at Dalhousie University. This was recorded in November of 2015. Enjoy. Please give a warm Weldon welcome to Glenford and Dan. Awesome. Hey guys, so thanks for having us. Uh, really excited to be here. Love what you've done with the place. We're both Dow grads, and so we wondered where all the paintings of elderly white people went, and now we just found them, which is really exciting. Uh, first off, I've got a mic on. I'm just going to record this. We've launched a podcast with our firm. Uh, I don't think any of this is going to be salvageable, but you're being recorded. If that's a problem, don't say anything, I guess, or I guess. go away. Just no stupid questions. Yeah, you're on notice. Uh, but it's great to be here. So food law is a somewhat new thing in Canada. It's a less new thing in the United States. And it's a very old thing in Europe. Uh, and it's growing and changing, particularly in 2015, because there's this sort of consumer consciousness about food issues that's putting pressure on stakeholders all up the chain. And so what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to speak in sort of five-minute increments and talk to you about my firm and what we do. The second piece uh, for me, and you're going to do the same. Uh, second piece, I'm going to talk about what food law is or what it means to me. And then the third piece, I'm going to talk about uh, where I think it fits in legal education and where Dow I think should be or might want to be on in this practice area. I'm a food lawyer, but it's really dependent on who's asking. That determines how I answer that question. So if it's, uh, there are two factors. One is, and this is a little bit ageist, if I see someone who I think has a very concrete idea of classical practice areas, and if I'm low on energy, my answer is I'm a corporate commercial lawyer I do a lot of regulatory work, and I do contractual IP. So not trademarks and not patents, but uh, IP or confidential business information that's built into contracts. Uh, and really, that's what I do. And so, so someone who might be more close-minded to food law would understand what I'm talking about, and they can fit me into those three categories. And 
then we go and talk about the Blue Jays, basically. If it's someone who might be a little bit more open-minded or I have more energy, it's I'm a food lawyer. And it's a fabulous question because no one knows what that is. And there are two types of people. One type of person who places their understanding of what a food lawyer might be and says, oh yeah, totally, like you uh, work in food security. And, and another person is just like, oh, okay, so you import meat? Uh, and, and then everything in between. And it's really fascinating. And what I really do is a little bit more nuanced than that. I'll tell you a bit about my firm. So there are actually, so there are two lawyers, we're a two lawyer shop, uh, and 80% of what we do is in the food sector. I've actually got a couple clients to sign off on things that I can talk about today, which is really fun if we have time. But I do exactly that. So working for food clients in corporate commercial matters, in regulatory matters, and in IP-related issues. But food law with most practitioners means something different. When you were talking, I was thinking about that initial conversation, what's a food lawyer? And I hope today you guys get some understanding of it because I think in a lot of ways, people like Glenford and I are both still trying to figure that out. Um, he may be able to articulate it better than I can, um, but uh, it is dependent on the audience, um, dependent on what work you're trying to secure because at the end of the day, um, you know, as a lawyer, I'm still out there trying to hustle and get work and build a business. Um, but when I when I left here, I probably wrote my last exam, so it's nice to not be on that side, <laughs> avoiding people eating apples in exams, which is a huge pet peeve, even for a uh, food lawyer. Um, I moved to Newfoundland, and I started my practice in Newfoundland. I started basically in construction law. That's sort of what I fell into, because that's the work that was available. Um, and I sort of took a step back at one point and said, okay, what do I care about? What, what am I actually interested in? Because there's so many areas of the law, there's so many ways you can go, there's so many directions. Um, and since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated and uh, enthralled with cooking and eating and growing food. So I was like, well, this is crazy. One, that I went to law school, figuring this out now after I'm done. Um, but second, uh, how can I build that into a legal practice? And so that's what I just started doing. I said, you know what, I'm just going to be a food lawyer. Now in Newfoundland, there's not a whole lot of just fisheries work, so there's primary uh, producers on the fish side and processing, but there's not a whole lot of ag or um, food production stuff. So when the opportunity came to move to Prince Edward Island, um, I had a couple clients in, in Newfoundland. I started on the restaurant side. I started basically on the fork side at the, at the plate. That took me to my first real food law client who was a guy wanting to start a cheese business. Um, and now he's, yeah, Adam, and, um, but now he's doing really well. He's got this awesome cheese company in Newfoundland that rocks. Um, when I moved to PEI, because my wife got a, a job there and I followed her, and I went to the law firm. I worked at Cox and Palmer. We had an office where I live now in Summerside. And I sat down with the, the senior partner for that office. And he said, Well, what kind of law do you want to do? You know, you want to, I'm so, oh, I'm a food lawyer. And he looked at me like, what the hell is a food lawyer? <laughs> so I tried to explain to him, you know, this is what, what I do. This is what uh, I've got my building my practice around. And he, he didn't get it. Um, two years later, I remember he came into my office and knocked on the door. And he's like, yes, food lawyer. That's the guy I need. Let's go. Um, so <laughs> it was taking a while for a lot of people to transition their mind into what exactly it is that you do. Um, the second example, the, the only cookbook that I've ever seen that has crickets in it is the Vikram Vidge cookbook. And I uh, met him a few weeks ago at uh, a Food Island conference in PEI. And 
Oh, he, he, we were talking, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a food lawyer. And he said, oh, that's great. We need more food lawyers. And so I thought, okay, the people in business, the people who are doing it, get it. Um, the lawyers don't necessarily get it. And I think that is um, something that you'll see when you come out too, but you start to see now is that I think the legal profession itself is transitioning away from um, clients coming in the door, meeting with a lawyer who does this type of box work, to clients coming in the door who have this type of business that need a lawyer who understands the aspects of that type of business. I think Len, it's probably similar for you that yes, I do you know, the legal stuff um, for uh, commercial food clients, um, but a lot of the time as well, you are coaching and helping them um, through business decisions and growth decisions because you see it on a day-to-day -day basis because you're seeing it with different types of people and you're sort of adopting best practices. Um, so that's my quick little intro. Um, one last piece is, I guess Glenford and I are a little different here. Glenford's got his own firm and he is a, I think you said 80% food law. Yeah. Um, I work in a small office in a regional law firm that I have had to sell to the law firm basically internally as to what is food law, why it should be a practice group, how we can leverage it to make more money, um, which is what the partnership is interested in. Um, and how we can take the skills that are already there and already existing and turn those into something that they can sell, essentially. Um, I do that partly for them, I guess, but mostly for me because if I want to practice as a food lawyer, if I want to be doing 80% what Glenford does in my situation, I need to build a team internally um, at the law firm and get the law firm thinking about um, food law as a practice group as opposed to just the traditional silos. So that's my quick little intro. Yeah. I think uh, <clears throat> when we think about what food law is, or as I like to phrase it, is food law a thing? Like I think the best way to think about it is to look at health law and to go back in time to like 1985 when health law was a nascent concept uh, before there were health law lawyers. And now like at every major firm, there's a huge health law group that's comprised of like 20 individuals that work almost exclusively with healthcare providers or doctors or dentists or other regulated health professionals. Um, but if you place yourself in that like dentist, doctor situation in 1985 and think about how that person would go about setting up their business, they would have a corporate commercial lawyer deal with their main contracts and setting up whatever entity or vehicle they want to drive their practice from. Uh, they're in a heavily regulated environment, so they want someone with some regulatory affairs expertise to deal with the college and to deal with signing up, making sure they're compliant with their obligations. Uh, there's a huge privacy component to what they do, so they're going to want to deal with someone who has some privacy expertise. Inevitably, malpractice will come up, so they're going to hire a litigator to deal with some form of tort. Um, and dealing with the college, you're dealing with administrative issues and JR. Uh, and so that is like, in 1985, before there's a health law lawyer, there is a small firm worth of different lawyers who have different expertises in this area. And what someone said in the early 90s was like, I deal with these five or eight statutes all the time. I know them inside and out. I can probably provide healthcare practitioners uh, very specific and nuanced sector-based advice alongside the more sort of classical pieces of advice that a lawyer would provide. And that has been a model that's been immensely successful. And it's been immensely successful uh, on the practitioner's end of things, uh, as well as in the academic side. And at Dow, we have an amazing health law institute that I don't think I appreciated when I was here because I had zero interest in like informed consent and 
egregious torts and like, things that I traditionally associated with uh, with health law. But health law has sort of expanded into something that's way more multifaceted and takes into account some environmental issues. There is a, an article in the Dunn Library right now by Constance McIntosh, who's the head of the Institute on Food Security in the North. It's like fabulous. Like I love that this is being produced by Canadian jurists because it doesn't exist otherwise. But there's no natural home for it. And so it's sort of like you can attribute uh, food security to nutritional outcomes and health. And so then you fall under the sort of the health branch. But in both a, a practical way as a lawyer and also as a professor within the academic realm, health law exhibits a lot of the same qualities that food law does. And with food law, the big thing that makes it unique to itself is this sort of food systems approach to dealing with problems. Uh, and so from a policy perspective, if you're making a change at the distributor level, it's going to have an effect on consumers like all of you, as well as on processors and on agricultural providers, uh, as well as import-export components. And if you make a change at the consumer level, it's the same thing. And so, so there are echoes all the way through the system when you make a change in one place. And so approaching problems like that is like in a lot of ways a more natural way of approaching legal problems. Or like if you're a straight up litigator and you're given a fact set like you would be given in a law school hypo on your exam, in the real world there are going to be a variety of issues that fall inside and outside of that towards exam. Uh, and you're going to want to be able to identify and pick up on privacy issues or on regulatory issues and that sort of thing. Or understand that at the same time as civil action is going on, there might be a regulatory component, and we need to know how that fits in. Like it's kind of your job. And in food law, there is always a regulatory component. Uh, there is always a civil liability component. You're dealing with risks from various levels. And, uh, and that's, uh, I think, what really makes it unique into itself, is sort of that health law example. But in 2015, uh, that's well established. And we've got food law, and it's encountering the same sort of issues. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I get all these memories. It's so weird that you get memories when you come back to somewhere. Um, when he talks about tort law, uh, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but um, when you're in practice, you often get, when you're talking to your colleagues, sometimes they'll come to you and talk to you and say, um, the things that, you know, 80% of what you're doing, 90% of what you're doing is not all that exciting, but it's that 10% or 20% that is, and you'll get someone to come to your office and say, Man, we got the, I've got this issue that's like a law school problem. And I was like, oh, cool, man. Like, that couldn't. <laughs> when I saw that law school problem in that tour class, there was no way that could ever happen. And in ours, hopefully, it could never happen. But um, yeah, to sort of build off, I think, thought it was when I was thinking about this uh, this morning, I sort of thought it might be good to even start at what is the idea of food. Because um, that's sort of my starting point is. How does the law define food? And I don't know, certainly when I was in law school, we um, never studied the Food and Drug Act. I would have never looked at the definition of what food is or what food what is, you know, constitutes food. Um, and now that's basically a starting point for a lot of things. So I, I looked at three quick little definitions that I thought were interesting um, from Canada, the United States, and from the EU. Um, and in Canada, we define food as an article manufactured, sold, or represented for use as food or drink for human beings, chewing gum, and any ingredient that may be mixed with food for any purpose whatsoever. Um, in the United States, similar. Articles used for food or drink for man, I'm assuming and women, um, or other animals, uh, which is a distinction. Chewing gum, again, chewing gum was an issue in uh, 1906 when this <laughs> act was first written. 
um, articles used for components of any other such article. So um, food isn't just what you think of when you, you know, open a package of potato chips. It's also um, all of the additives that are put in those potato chips, both for flavor, for preservation. It's the packaging, so packaging interacts with food products, so packaging can be considered a food. Um, and then you know, in European Union, uh, their regulation now, I don't know if there was an EU course here when I was here, it was like two weeks, um, trying to understand how the European Union legal structure is set up is, uh, is, a, lot of, is a lot of work. So I took EU food law uh, through Michigan State and I swear I spent half the course trying to figure out what the heck, how this all works. But anyways, um, in their regulation that sort of governs the principles of food law, it actually references, it's called something, 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 food law, and something, something, something else, um, defines food as substance or product, whether processed partially, processed, or unprocessed. Only a lawyer would write something like that. Um, intended to be or reasonably intended to be inserted, ingested by humans. Um, including drink, chewing gum, and any substance, including water, intentionally incorporated to food in its manufacture, preparation, or treatment. So when I start to think of what a food lawyer is, it's, it's anything that is captured in that realm, and sort of anything that, um, uh, when you're looking at food from the time you dig a potato out of the ground or a whole lobster out of the trap, um, and in Europe, you're, you're even starting sooner than that sometimes is whether or not um, animals intended for consumption as food, how that fits into the spectrum, you know, how far do you go, um, right along the supply chain um, from the processing and then the distribution. Um, in my case, I do a lot of um, sort of what I consider private food law, which is a lot of export work, a lot of uh, distribution and marketing agreements um, because we're, you know, PEI, basically, we grow things and pull things out of the water, and then we package them and we send them elsewhere. So um, that's where our practices differ, too, is that that's sort of a big focus of my practice is the international trade side of it, um, and, uh, and less on the sort of anything local in terms of, now, that's what I care about, so that's where I ended up, but that's sort of my general starting point on, on food. I guess the other piece that... Um, I guess caught me a little off guard when, when I started thinking about um, food laws. Really, if you look at the history of food law, um, what drives it is is safety, is public safety and food safety, and um, really what is all driving all policy on food law in all major jurisdictions is um, making sure that people have food that's safe to eat. And when you see, um, if you look back, you see certain events like the XL, what they call it, XL Foods or something? Yeah. With the, um, was it Listeria outbreak? Five or six years ago that really precipitated a change in Canada's food laws that's happening right now. Or you look to like the, I think I think it's pronounced Reg Nashi, Reg, I wrote it down, Reg Nishi, which is this wild, crazy story from the United States, this cult in Oregon that ended up poisoning a whole bunch of salad bars because they wanted to take over a community, a town. Um, but I told it was crazy. It's an interesting story. Um, uh, those are the types of things that drive food law. It's all around food safety. So, But what I think we're coming to now, which makes the practice even more interesting, is we're at a point where you know, food safety has been pretty good. Um, food safety is still a primary concern, 
But as um, the general public, and I think people like you or myself, um, have uh, a better understanding and a better appreciation for food, um, uh, how, you know, how it affects you as an individual, but also how it affects our community and society. Um, I think that's where the interesting side of the food law is, and that's where I think the, the future developments are, and there's a whole bunch that are, we're just scratching the surface. Last thing, I know I'm running on, but Glenford and I went to school together. We graduated together. I knew Glenford was into food because one day at a party across the street at his house, he told me that he had been out on like a boat or something and had 20 crabs and was all excited. Um, <laughs> which, I went lobstering. It was insane and dangerous. <laughs> which seemed awesome. Um, and then three years later, we crossed paths as food lawyers, and which we both sort of come to independently. Um, so anyhow, that's our little that's our backstory. And then I did uh, sat on his sister's board of food security in Newfoundland. Anyhow, it's a family affair. We keep it safe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually went lobstering after I graduated. It was like like five days after one of the, my colleagues here, his family had two lobster licenses, and so we went out for 24 hours, and it was the scariest thing I've ever done. Never become a lobster fisherman if you value your life. It's like a boat sank, a guy's body washed up, and guys hung out in the Atlantic for like five hours in survival suits. It was like That's terrifying. Uh, but great. Banded lobsters, it was wonderful. Uh, felt closer to my food. It's important. Uh, but I guess, I mean, so where we get to here is, so Dan and I become food lawyers, and there's no real clear path to doing that other than being intuitively interested in the subject area. So essentially pretending you're in exam mode for a series of years while carrying on your regular job. And so with Dan, that meant uh, doing food law education abroad. For me, it just meant reading. And, and getting involved in my community and, and meeting people who do the business end of this stuff. I, and so one of the things we really want to talk about today is, is where food law might fit in your legal education. And so in Europe, like it's ingrained in, in how to set up a, a law school. They've got a bunch of different ideas on how to train their lawyers. In the US, uh, a lot of law schools are taking note on the interest in food law and how regulated it is. So Harvard has a food law and policy clinic underneath their health law uh, group, and they've got a chair in food law and policy. So a professor is dedicated to those issues. UCLA at Resnick has uh, a program. Uh, University of Arkansas has an LLM in food law. University of Wisconsin has a food law uh, and policy journal, or it's part of their, their law review. And, um, and Michigan State, obviously, is a leader in global food law and global food law systems. And so in the US, this discussion is very much alive. In Canada, it is completely dormant. So as practitioners, one of our best friends is CLE. So it's other lawyers who have written papers and can sort of speak to their experiences as a lawyer in dealing with anything. Uh, and typically in traditional practice areas, it's really easy to go through it and get updated case summaries and understanding of where the law is today. And it's essentially like it's like canned real life lawyer material. It's great. In food law, no such thing exists, which makes it very challenging to keep up to date on what's going on in food law. That's the first piece. And the second piece is it's uh, it's a lot of regulatory work. So it's not like there are a lot of reported decisions that come out, although I know that most of the decisions you're going to read in constitutional law are food law cases in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so 
having a place at a law school for this, uh, this practice would be really helpful. And it's also really rich fodder for study. Uh, and I think that's for a few reasons. So one, I find this stuff terribly interesting. So uh, if you're here, maybe you do as well. So I would have loved to have had the opportunity to do a food law course. Uh, second, though, it's like if anyone in their undergrad had done any work on food or food security or sustainability or environmentalism or anything, you know this whole sector is fraught in paradox. And so what Dan is referring to about food safety, there's this huge tension between food safety and then people who I consider the accredited investors of the food world, which is people who think about what they eat, uh, want to get closer to farmers, want raw milk, have health concerns that aren't addressed by major mainstream producers. And so regulators are having to make a decision as to, well, do we protect everyone and ignore people that want access to certain things? Or do we push the other way and create areas for people to have access to things that are inherently dangerous? So unpasteurized milk, for example. It's like, it's a big question and it's going to the courts in Ontario. Uh, and there are winners and losers there. And the study of law at an academic level is really being free of having a client for me, I see it as being free of having a client and being able to objectively sort of understand how decisions are made and, and how they fall on one side or the other. Uh, I think, and, and there are a variety of tribunals that write hilarious decisions that I encourage you to go check out. One of them is the Canada Agricultural Review Tribunal, which has this reluctant judge who keeps on writing decisions that basically say, I'm not allowed to make any other decision than the decision I came to but you should really be appealing this to the federal court <laughs> in his reasons. It's like great, like really wonderful stuff. And that from an academic perspective is like fascinating, uh, fascinating case of, of how our, our tribunals are growing. And that's, that's, they deal with farmers, they deal with people who import food illegally. They're like 20 decisions a year they report and they're great. Um, but the third reason why food law would naturally have a home in legal education from my point of view is this idea of of non-linearity. So this idea of not being a torn to a particular practice area, of being contract or tort or privacy or what have you, it forces lawyers to think more like how they think in a clinical setting, which is uh, a variety of issues are gonna be thrown at you all the time. You need to be sufficiently flexible to address those or find out how to address those, which is a core part of being a practitioner in any area. Uh, and, and it sort of starts to connect uh, different areas of law that you're learning about in your first and second years. So in terms of, and I understand that in law school there's this huge debate over whether we train lawyers or whether we teach people uh, analytical tools to deal with legal problems, and there's attention there as well. Food law for me in a lot of ways has made me a better practitioner because it forces me every time I take on a file to reflect on those individual practice areas, try and issue spot across the spectrum, bring it back together, and then figure out how it affects things up and downstream from wherever that client might be. And for me to have had the opportunity to do that at law school in a clinical way or uh, under an institute uh, would have been immensely valuable. And I think for you as students, it would be immensely valuable as well if you have an interest in this area. Yeah, I, I think that would have been fantastic as opposed to having to go basically outside of Canada to learn about even Canadian food law and regulation, <laughs> which is what I had to do. Um, and again, just sort of the areas, the really interesting part about, well, there's two really interesting parts about food law, I think. Um, one is the fun one, which is, I always make it a practice to 
um, working in a small province, more people work for the Royal Bank of Canada than live in Prince Edward Island. So I live in a small jurisdiction. Um, so I get to know my clients as best I can. So you know, if they own a coffee shop, we don't meet at my office, we meet at their coffee shop. Um, if they're a farmer, I put on my rubber boots and I go to the farm. Um, if they're a fisher, I might go to the wharf or I might go to their AGM and talk to a whole bunch of fishers. Um, I find that, like, I like hopping in a pickup truck, wearing blue jeans to work, and booting around a farm looking at apple trees, talking whatever, knowing that I'm going to spend four, I don't know if my firm likes it, but knowing that I spend four or five hours that I'm not billing that client for, but I'm building that client relationship that then will sustain itself down the road. And in my experience, clients want you to know what's going on with their business. Like, and you go into a, a seed propagation lab or something and see 4,000 varieties of potatoes that somebody's holding for 10 years until that particular seed becomes marketable again. You get an appreciation for what it is that they're doing. Yeah, you still have to understand the legal side of it, but when you have a real picture for how their business operates, when they come to you and say, um, you know, I've got to protect this seed variety through private law, through contract, um, you, I don't know, for me at least, you can visualize it, you can see it, you can see how it affects them, you can see how it affects their business, you can see the people who are working there for them and why it's important to them. And I think that makes you a better lawyer. It may not make you a better billing lawyer as a junior lawyer, but I think in time it, it does. Um, but, you know, uh, that for me, that's one of the, you kind of go out a bit on a limb. Like, that's the kind of cool thing about uh, Glenford, too, is like, food law isn't, it would be far easier for me just to do residential and commercial real estate practice and just focus on my corporate commercial yeah. practice. Um, I'd make more money, I'd have more work, um, and I'd have more job security now down the road i don't think so but um but i, I like i said earlier it's, it's kind of nice to do something that you know you're still most of your work is legal work and a lot of it's going to be boring um that's the reality um but it's kind of so nice sorry to, to tell you yes yeah, that. that's too bad <laughs> um get out what you can go um <laughs> You're here to inspire them, I know, right. I know there's <laughs> professors in the room and everything. Um, but that makes it more interesting, uh, for sure. And then the, the other second interesting part is the sort of diversity of areas of law. So as a food lawyer, you're dealing with, you know, what I was writing down today is uh, public law. So whether that's statutes and regs and regulatory work, um, and PEI, a drafted regulations for the government as a private lawyer, which is bizarre, but uh, interesting exercise. Um, whether you're dealing with recalls, so uh, it's just interesting work when someone calls you up and says, I've got this situation where our products have been contaminated, um, what do I do? That's kind of a drop everything and figure it out and help them work through that um, side of it. Then when you're dealing with international, like I said earlier, whether it's international contract or um, when things like um, CETA come up, that are going to affect uh, quotas for your industry or, uh, again, that affects how you transactions, how your deals work. Um, the other side of private law that I do a lot of and talk with is just the seed protection, but also um, what I think is a real future in the food law practice, what you're seeing is you're seeing um, difficulty in terms of absolute harmonization of different food systems around the world. But all our food products 
across all kinds of borders. So what you're starting to see now is you're starting to see the private sector move ahead of government. So I see that as sort of um, uh, things like doing MSC certification for uh, fishing companies or for fishers. Um, uh, that type of work is is out there and it's happening and there's not a lot of people on the forefront of it. And I think it, in a lot of ways the it, global food industry as it keeps growing um, is outpaces government usually by 10 years at least. So um, yeah, that was sort of what I said were my interesting bits. Okay. That's it. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. That was awesome. Thanks for listening, guys. That was Law Hour at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University. Uh, you listened to me and Dan Kutcher, a food lawyer at Cox and Palmer's Summerside PEI office. I hope you enjoyed. We're taking a break until the early fall, and then we'll return with season two and some really exciting programming. So until then, thanks for listening, and thanks as always to Shane McPherson for the great music.